everyone, and welcome to this reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette. This is the Tuesday, January 24th edition is heard here on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. My name is Andrew Hopp, your reader filling in. Hope you're having a great start to your day as uh, we start this reading here. Taking a look at some of these headlines on the front page from the Tuesday edition. Two dead teacher injured in Des Moines shooting incident at school on edge of downtown was targeted, police say. It's a story by Scott McFetridge of the Associated Press. Also, county passes audit maintenance shed construction set for spring in Mason City. And preschool program expands, district adding new transitional kindergarten program. Before we take a look at the full stories here, let's take a check of our forecast for Mason City and the North Iowa area. Well, you can expect for today, your Wednesday, as this is being aired, that you can expect a 30% chance of snow, mainly after 8 this morning, so uh, now through uh, later on. Patchy fog is what we would have seen earlier, otherwise cloudy with a high near 28, light north-northwest wind becoming northwest up to 15 miles in the afternoon, actually gusting as high as 23. New snow accumulation of less than a half inch possible. For tonight, expect a 30% chance of snow mainly before 7 p.m., mostly cloudy with a low around 9 degrees above. Windchill values as low as negative 5. For your Thursday, you can expect partly sunny conditions, a high near 17. Those winds from the Northwest shifting to come from the southwest in the afternoon, gusting as high as 20 miles per, per hour. Uh, somewhere in there. And then uh, Thursday night, a 20% chance of snow after midnight, mostly cloudy with a low around 6 in breezy conditions. And for your Friday, a 20% chance of snow before noon, mostly cloudy with a high near 34 in windy conditions. But again, for today, your Wednesday... A 30% chance of snow, mainly after 8 o'clock today, so starting now, a high near 28. And that's your forecast here in this reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette for the uh, Tuesday edition. is brought to you here on Wednesday morning here on the network. All right, our first story. Two dead, teacher injured in Des Moines shooting. Incident at school on the edge of downtown was targeted, police say. This story by Scott McFetridge. Dateline, Des Moines, Iowa. Two students were killed Monday and a teacher was injured in what police said was a targeted shooting at a Des Moines school that is dedicated to helping at-risk youth and three suspects were arrested afterward. The shooting was at an educational program called Starts Right Here that is affiliated with the Des Moines School District. Police say emergency crews were called to the school, which is in a business park, just before 1 p.m. Officers arrived to find two students critically injured and they started CPR immediately. The two students died at the hospital. The teacher who was injured is in serious condition and headed into surgery uh, Monday afternoon was the latest. Uh, the latest is he's doing better. About 20 minutes after the shooting, police said officers stopped a car that matched witnesses' descriptions about two miles away and took three suspects into custody. Police said one of the suspects ran from the car, but officers using a canine were able to track that person down. The incident was definitely targeted. It was not random. There was nothing random about this, Sergeant Paul Parizic said. The Starts Right Here program, which helps at-risk youth in grades 9 through 12, was founded by Will Holmes, a rapper whose stage name is Will Keeps. He didn't immediately respond to a message seeking comment Monday. That's because he was the one shot. The school 
is designed to pick up the slack and help the kids who need help the most, Parizic said. The Greater Des Moines Partnership, the economic and community de- development organization for the region, says on its website that Keeps came to Des Moines about 20 years ago from Chicago, where he lived in a world of gangs and violence before finding healing through music. The partnership said this starts right here movement seeks to encourage and educate young people living in disadvantage and oppressive circumstances using the arts, entertainment, music, hip-hop, and other programs. It also teaches financial literacy and helps students prepare for job interviews and improve their communication skills. The ultimate goal is to break down barriers of fear, intimidation, and other damaging factors, leading to a sense of being disenfranchised, forgotten, and rejected. The school's website says 70% of the students it serves are minorities. Governor Kim Reynolds, who serves on an advisory board for Starts Right Here, said she was shocked and saddened to hear about the shooting. Des Moines Police Chief Dana Wingert is on the Starts Right Here board. I've seen firsthand how hard Will Keeps and his staff works to help at-risk kids through this alternative education program, Reynolds said in a statement. My heart breaks for them. These kids and their families, Kevin and I, are praying for their safe recovery. Nicole Krantz said her office near the school was put on lockdown immediately after the shooting, and she saw someone running from the building with police in pursuit on foot and in patrol cars. We just saw a lot of cop cars pouring in from everywhere, Krantz said to the Des Moines Register. It's terrifying. We're all worried. We went on lockdown, obviously. We were all told to stay away from the windows because we weren't sure if if they caught the guy. All right, scary stuff there. The one who was shot was uh, Will Keeps and uh, injured. He was not killed. He is doing better at last check, according to uh, Sergeant Paul Parizic on the radio as of Tuesday morning. This is Andy here bringing to you this news to you on uh, Tuesday afternoon. If there's more updates, uh, you might want to check, uh, check out one of the news websites, uh, and we will bring that uh, to you here before long here on Iris because we'll have the live reading of today's register That comes up after this program at 9 o'clock on the network. In other front-page news here on the Mesa City Globe-Gazette reading, County passes audit, maintenance shed construction set for spring in Mason City. This story by Robin McClelland of the Globe-Gazette. The Cerro Gordo County Board of Supervisors received a clean bill of health for its finances Monday following its annual audit report. Gardner plus company CPAs in Charles City presented a final audit report for the fiscal year ending June 30th. The Board of Supervisors accepted a Certificate of Achievement for Financial Reporting for the 26th consecutive year. The audit and financial report for the fiscal year showed the county's unrestricted general fund reserves were 21,000. Actually, let's do this again. Step back here. $21,506,835. This is a $3 million. $213,625 increase from the prior year's $18,293,210 fund balance. That's a lot of money. General obligation debts fell more than $440,000 to $5 million. $4,148 for fiscal year 2022. Under audit reporting requirements, Cerro Gordo County disclosed its departments were allocated $8.25 million in American Rescue Plan Act money, 
of which it oversaw a spending of $3.6 million in 2022 in addition to its typical yearly operation cost. ARP funds were used for the Prairie Land Trail purchase of the 114-acre King Fisher Hollow Wildlife Area, continued COVID response by Cerro Gordo Public Health, and the ongoing maintenance shed projects in Ventura, Thornton, and Mason City. King Land Construction won bids for both the Ventura, Thornton, and Mason City buildings, with costs coming in at $1.60. I did that again, everyone. My apologies. We're doing this again. $1.65 million and $2.87 million, respectively. Ventura's maintenance facility opened in December, with the Thornton location slated to open in February. According to County Engineer Brandon Billings, permits have been secured for the Mason City location and construction should begin in the spring. Billings said one of the biggest advantages at the new County Engineering Department and the soon-to-be new facility on North Illinois Avenue is portable generators. We have it wired to bring in portable generators. So if power is taken out in the county, we can hook up to the building to keep it going. Other ARP funds noted at the meeting were dispersed to the Public Health Department for lead paint mitigation and ongoing COVID relief. Gardner Plus Company found that while there was a deficiency in the internal control over compliance considered to be material weakness, that's a quote, uh, according to Health Department internal reporting, this is a common issue in smaller communities which often don't have the staff to adequately meet auditing requirements. Our final front page story, third front page story here in the Mason City Globe Gazette. Tuesday, January 24th edition, preschool program expands. District also adding new transitional kindergarten program. We'll learn what this is about. Globe Gazette staff is the writer. The Mason City Community School District is expanding its four-year-old preschool program to include an all-day option that meets five days a week. By working with a local child care provider, the district will offer wraparound child care services in addition to its half-day preschool program to better meet the needs of families, according to a press release. The goals of this change are to fill existing gaps in the community for families who need, quali- who need quality part-time child care and to support more children attending preschool. Children must be four years old by September 15, 2023 to qualify. DHS child care assistance will be accepted for wraparound services. Morning and afternoon half-day preschool classes that meet four days a week will still be provided. Busing at the beginning and end of preschool sessions will be provided. The district is also adding a new transitional kindergarten program, or TK, program for children who are five years old by September 15, 2023, but may not yet be ready to attend kindergarten. TK is an all-day program that follows the same calendar as K-12 classes. Fees to attend TK will be the same as K-6 registration fees, and busing is available. The district plans to expand to offer TK in each elementary school building, but will begin by offering two sections of TK for up to 40 total students for the 23-24 school year. Anyone interested in having their child attend TK should apply on the district's website prior to April 15, 2023. Student enrollment in TK will be prioritized based on age and may consider teacher recommendation or other relevant developmental information. 
Parents will be notified of acceptance into the program by May 1st, 2023. TK will be offered at Roosevelt and Hoover Elementary Schools in the 2023-24 school year, but registration is open to any Mason City resident, student, or children who open enroll into the Mason City Community School District. Registration for preschool for the 2023-24 school year is open and can be found on the district's website at www.masoncity-schools.org. Or is it masoncityschools.org? Anyway, uh, anyone with questions is invited to contact Assistant Superintendent for Curriculum and Instruction, Bridget Expen. This might be easier. 641-450-5002. And no, they did not pay me to give their number twice. Uh, Moving on now. Let's take care of everything on page A1. Moving on, on now to page A2. Mason City Man Pleads Guilty to Stealing SUV. This is a story by Matthew Rezab of the Globe Gazette. A Mason City man who was accused of stealing an SUV in October has pleaded guilty in Cerro Gordo County District Court. According to court records, 31-year-old Oliver J. Morehouse pleaded guilty to first-degree theft last week. First-degree theft is a Class C felony punishable by up to 10 years in prison. Prosecutors are recommending Morehouse's 10-year sentence be suspended and to be placed on probation for up to five years. The affidavit states that Morehouse stole a silver 2014 Dodge Journey SUV around 5.15 a.m. on October 15, 2022 on East State Street. The report does not specify how or where Morehouse was arrested. He was booked into the Cerro Gordo County Jail at 7.41 a.m. the same day. Morehouse has two prior theft convictions and a pending case on his record. He has been sentenced to 60 days in jail after stealing alcohol from Casey's General Store located on 12th Street Northeast in Mason City last October. A concurrent sentence will be served for stealing a pair of boots from Walmart that same month. An unauthorized use of a credit card charge is pending after Morehouse allegedly used a stolen card to attempt to extract money from the ATM machine at Hy-Vee East in Mason City last September. His attempts failed. The court is under no obligation to follow the sentencing recommendation. Here's a scary story. On page A2, it's an AP story. Obnoxiously loud car? Well, a traffic camera might be listening. It's written by Bobby Kana Calvin, Dateline, New York. After the relative quiet of the pandemic, New York City has come roaring back. Just listen, jackhammers, honking, cars and trucks, rumbling subway trains, sirens, shouting. Over the years, there have been numerous efforts to quiet the cacophony. One of the latest traffic cameras equipped with sound meters capable of identifying souped-up cars and motorbikes emitting an illegal amount of street noise. At least 71 drivers have received tickets so far for violating noise rules during a years-long pilot program of the system. The city's Department of Environmental Protection now has plans to expand the use of roadside sound meters. Vehicles with illegally vehicles with illegally modified mufflers and tailpipes that emit extremely loud noise have been a growing problem in recent years, that said city council member Eric Botcher, who heralded the arrival of the radars to his district to help reduce obnoxious noise. New York City already has one of the most extensive noise ordinances in the country, setting allowable levels for a host of noisemakers such as jackhammers and vehicles. A state law known as the Stop Loud and Excessive Exhaust Pollution Act, or the Sleep Act, 
that went into effect last spring raised fines for illegal modifications of mufflers and exhaust systems. That's too bad. The entire state of North Carolina would be, uh, they'd be uh, not in good shape. Because police officers often have other priorities, offenders have gone their merry, noisy way. The new devices record the license plates of offenders, much like how speedsters are nabbed by roadside cameras. Vehicle owners face fines of $800, $800, that's a lot of money, for a first noise offense and a penalty of $2,625 if they ignore a third offense hearing. Good golly. City officials, this is New York City, so I can uh, elaborate a little bit here. City officials declined to reveal where the radars are currently perched. A year ago, Paris, one of Europe's noisier cities, installed similar equipment along some streets. Evidence is clear that noise affects not only hearing but mood and mental health, not to mention possible links to heightened risks of heart disease and elevated blood pressure. You listen to the noise out there, it's, it is nonstop. The horns, the trucks, the sirens... New York City Mayor Eric Adams bemoaned during a recent press conference that blamed an expressway for noise and illness. Noise pollution makes it hard to sleep and increases the risk of chronic disease. Nearly a decade ago, one of Adams' predecessors, Mayor Michael Bloomberg, launched a war on noise, releasing 45 pages of rules that covered chiming ice cream trucks and how long a canine can continuously lap, yap, for five minutes during the wee hours of the night, ten during the most most during the day before its owner gets in the doghouse. These people are terrible. Why would anybody want to live in New York City? I don't know. I know people live there because it's cool or whatever. Not a chance. Not ah. Uh, yeah, I've listened to enough tapes of Bob Grant to know that's not a nice place. All right. Uh, sorry, y'all. I know WABC, territory, all that great stuff. I don't know how anybody could live in that place. I don't get it. I don't understand it. Thank God for Iowa and for freedom. Moving on to uh, more news here. As we move on now to page A3, nursing home resident found in vegetative state. More uh, good work here by Clark Kaufman, who uh, does a wonderful job investigating these nursing home incidences and, is that the right word, incidences, occurrences uh, for the Iowa Capital Dispatch. Well, this story airs here on page A3 of the Mason City Globe Gazette. An Iowa nursing home resident was allegedly left in a vegetative state after the facility ignored her screams of pain and her pleas to be taken to the hospital. According to state records, state inspectors say another resident of the same Southern Iowa care facility was evicted last August when the staff dumped his belongings outside and wheeled him out to the exit door with nowhere to go. The allegations against Windsor Place Senior Living Campus in Sigourney could result in federal fines. A state fine of $9,500 is being held in suspension while the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services considers a federal penalty. The inspector's findings come at a difficult time for Windsor Place, which has been managed by a company now mired in receivership. That company, which has managed several care facilities in Iowa, allegedly owes $15.1 million to creditors, and according to court records, it is in dire financial shape. The most serious allegation against Windsor Place is tied to its treatment of a female resident of the home in November. State records indicate the woman, who was once a nurse, 
was up earlier than usual on the morning of November 29, 2022, and was complaining of a severe headache. The administrator, Amy K. Crow, who also happened to be the charge nurse on duty, allegedly told a nurse aide the resident had already been given pain medication. Later in the day, the aide reportedly told Crow the resident was complaining her headache had worsened and that it was causing excruciating pain. The woman was asking to be sent to, the, to a hospital. The aide later told inspectors Crow took no action and seemed more interested in cleaning and organizing the medication room. At 8.30 a.m., several of the facility's aides allegedly approached the marketing director at Windsor Place and told her Crow was doing nothing about the resident's pain or her request to go to the hospital. The marketing director later told inspectors she then raised the issue with Crow, but no action was taken and Crow never saw or assessed the resident that day. She was like a vegetable. By noon on November 29th, the resident was even more agitated, grabbing her head and screaming in pain and yelling that someone needed to take her to the hospital, according to inspectors. Two of the woman's fellow residents spoke to Crow, allegedly telling her the woman was crying, was in pain, and asking to be sent to the hospital. Two employees told Crow the woman was yelling, I was a nurse. I know they can help me. This is not normal. Nothing was done, the workers later told inspectors. Later that afternoon, according to inspectors, the marketing director went back to Crow and reported that the woman's speech was garbled and she was showing signs of confusion. Another aide reportedly talked to Crow several more times, asking her to check on the woman. The aide later told inspectors she felt helpless when Crow failed to act. Another worker told inspectors the administrator appeared dismissive of the employee's concerns, telling them the woman's complaints, but she is fine. The next morning, when one of the aides reported for work, she checked on the woman and found her soaked in urine from her shoulders to her knees, according to state reports. The woman was unresponsive, unable to talk, couldn't see out of her right eye, and couldn't move her right side. Crow was allegedly standing nearby and listening as one of the aides informed a colleague of the woman's condition. Crow reportedly told the two workers she had ordered a urinalysis and the woman was fine. One of the aides later told inspectors of the woman's condition that morning. There was nothing in her eyes. She was like a vegetable, the aide reported. Two days before, on a Monday, the aide said the woman was up, independent, and the dining room talking and normal. And by Wednesday, she was a vegetable. The inspector's written report indicates the woman most likely suffered from a stroke, pointing out that federal guidelines advise health care provider that during a stroke, every minute counts. Fast treatment can lessen the brain damage that a stroke can cause. The report doesn't indicate whether the woman survived the incident or was transferred elsewhere. When interviewed by inspectors, Crow reportedly acknowledged that staff members had come to her about the resident having a headache, but said no one ever told her the woman wanted to go to the hospital. She acknowledged she never assessed the woman's condition, consulted a physician, or notified the resident's family of the situation. Resident evicted with nowhere to go. As a result of the state's investigation into that incident, Inspectors cited Windsor Place for several other violations, including the eviction of a male, wheelchair-bound resident who had nowhere to go. 
The man told inspectors that when he moved into the home, he was told he could have his own room. Later, Crow insisted he share a room with someone else. The home's social worker told inspectors that when the man objected, the administrator yelled at him, wouldn't let him speak, and kept saying, you are getting a roommate or you are leaving against medical advice. What's it going to be? The social worker told inspectors the facility summoned a sheriff's deputy to escort the man outside after a maintenance worker stacked the man's belongings outside the door in trash bags. The man who is insulin dependent told inspectors he wasn't given any medications and had nowhere to go. He said he called his nephew and got a ride to his ex-wife's home where he fell down the steps and was taken by ambulance to a local hospital. The hospital kept him for two days, then arranged for him to return to Windsor Place, where he was placed in a small room that he described as so cluttered he couldn't get to the bathroom. Later, he was moved to another room and assigned a roommate. The director of nursing at the time of the incident later told inspectors she was uncomfortable with what had happened and had voiced her concerns to the corporate office. She and the home social worker each told inspectors that as soon as Crow started at the facility in June of 2022, she insisted that Medicare and Medicaid-dependent residents share room to better accommodate the private pay residents who typically pay more for their care. Residents who objected, the social worker said, were given 30-day eviction notices. Crow told state inspectors she was the niece of the man who was evicted. Asked if she remembered why she felt it was necessary for the man to share a room when there were vacant rooms at the facility, she allegedly said she couldn't recall the reason as it was a long time ago. State inspectors also spoke to the county deputy who had helped evict the man. The deputy reportedly confirmed his role in the matter and told inspectors he didn't feel it was right that a nursing home could force a resident onto the streets with no place to go. The inspectors cited Windsor Place for multiple violations related to the eviction, alleging the home had badgered and coerced the man into leaving so his discharge could be labeled voluntary and against medical advice. No state fines were imposed for any of the violations related to that incident. Although the eviction took place in August 2022, it was only recently investigated by the Iowa Department of Inspections and Appeals. Two months before that eviction, Trinity Hospital in Bettendorf discharged a homeless 81-year-old wheelchair-bound veteran to the, to the street with no phone. Nowhere to spend the night and no transportation. Hours after he was forced to leave the hospital, motorists spotted the man in his wheelchair trying to merge into traffic on Interstate 74. No fines were imposed in that case. Crow declined to comment Monday when asked about the findings of state inspectors. State records show Crow earns $92,500 per year at Windsor Place and has been an Iowa licensed nursing home administrator since 2009. In addition to her role at Windsor Place, Crow is also the administrator at Kyoto Healthcare Center. Iowa workforce records show Crow, age 40, was fired from Ridgewood Nursing and Rehabilitation in 2009, where she worked as a charge nurse. She was accused of telling an aide to do what you want in response to a request for direction on how to handle an issue. Also, she was alleged to have shared confidential information about corrective action taken against an employee. Crow's nursing home administrator's license is in good standing with no public record of discipline. 
In the past six years, the Iowa Board of Nursing Home Administrators has levied public sanctions against a licensed nursing home administrator on only two occasions. According to the Iowa Board of Nursing, Crow's nursing license is active and has no public record of discipline. Company now in receivership. Federal records indicate the 41-bed Windsor Place has CMS' lowest possible rating on all three quality measurements used by the federal agency, health inspectors, staffing levels, and overall quality. According to court records, Windsor Place and several other Iowa care facilities are operated by a network of affiliated businesses based in Chicago. In July of last year, each of those care facility operators was sued by PropCo, which is a group of New York investors who own the Iowa care facilities and lease the property to the operators. PropCo, spelled P-R-O-P-C-O, is alleging the Iowa facilities owe at least $15.1 million in unpaid rent. According to PropCo, the Chicago-based operator of the Iowa, the, the Iowa facilities is insolvent and had informed PropCo last year that it was in dire financial position with only enough cash on hand to operate the care facilities for 40 days. As a result of that lawsuit, a court-appointed receiver was put in charge of overseeing the facility's cash flow. The receiver then appointed Mission Management Communities, a Florida company, to run the Iowa care facilities. A representative of Mission told the Iowa Capital Dispatch on Monday the company had no comment on the findings of state inspectors. Earlier this month, the receiver in the PropCo case told the court that two prospective buyers for the chain had toured some of the care facilities, but no acceptable offers to purchase have been made. Well, that's quite an article there. That's written by Clark Kaufman in the Iowa Capital Dispatch. We're talking there about the Windsor Place Senior Living Campus in Sigourney, Iowa, which has been accused of ignoring patients in severe distress and evicting another patient who had nowhere to go. Sad, scary stuff there. Story from the Iowa Capital Dispatch here in the Mason City Globe Gazette reading. This is the Tuesday, January 24th edition is brought to you here on IRIS. And we are at the halfway point reminding you that this program and our other programs you hear here are for the use of our audience, the blind and print disabled. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, then please give us a call at 515-243-6833 or 1-877-404-4747. My name is Andrew Halp. I'm your reader filling in for today. And now we'll turn to today's obituaries here in the Mason City Globe Gazette for the Tuesday edition here, as you're hearing it here on the air Wednesday morning. If you're hearing it on the podcast, you're probably hearing it, you know, anytime you want. We have one obituary for today listed. That'd be for Michael G. Smith. Of Mason City, Michael G. Smith, age 71, of Mason City, passed away Sunday, January 22nd, 2023, at the Muse Norris Hospice Inpatient Unit in Mason City, with his family by his side. A funeral service will be held 11 a.m. Thursday, January 26, 2023, at the Hogan Bremer Moore Colonial Chapel at 126 3rd Street Northeast in Mason City. Burial will follow in Elmwood St. Joseph Cemetery. Military honors will be provided by the Mason City Veterans Honor Guard. Visitation will be held Wednesday, January 25th from 5 to 7 p.m. and will resume one hour prior to Mike's service at the funeral home on Thursday. The Hogan Bremer Moore Colonial Chapel at 126 3rd Street Northeast in Mason City is in charge of arrangements. They can be reached at 641-423-2372. We have two death notices to bring you as well. 
The first for Geraldine Gahan Hans Meyer, age 93, of Crystal Lake, died Sunday, January 22, 2023, at Good Samaritan Home in Forest City. Arrangements are with the Ewing Funeral Home of Britt. Ewing, E-W-I-N-G, Funeral Home of Britt. Next is for Janet Elaine Nicole Henricks, age 86, of Hampton, died Friday, January 20th. 2023 at Whispering Willow Memory Care in Fredericksburg. Arrangements are with the Council Woodley Funeral Home and Cremation Services of Hampton. Well, that's all we have for the obituary section. We'll bring you some more news before we head into the world of sports. This on page 3A. Embattled Hotel receives new license. Written by Clark Kaufman of the Iowa Capital Dispatch. A previously unlicensed Des Moines hotel where inspectors found trash, pests, non-working smoke detectors, and a sex toy in the microwave oven of a guest room has been granted a new license by the state. Inspectors visited the Baymont Inn & Suites at 4685 Northeast 14th Street on December 22nd and cited the owners for 14 regulatory violations, an unusually high number. At the time, the hotel was operating without a license. According to the inspector's report, he initially refused to grant conditional approval for a license due to uncorrected violations related to the condition of the guest rooms. The owner agreed to not accept any new guests or reservations until the hotel license application had been submitted and the license was awarded. The next day, the inspector reported the hotel had corrected the guest room violations and a conditional license was approved pending the submission of a license application and payment of a fine. During the December 22nd inspection of one guest room, the inspector found an accumulation of trash behind the bed, a sex toy inside the microwave oven, a soiled shirt stuffed inside the ice bucket, and other articles of clothing that had been discarded under a couch. In addition, the smoke detector in the room wasn't working. The owner agreed to dispose of the microwave oven. Thank goodness. In a separate room, the inspector found trash behind a dresser console and clothing discarded behind a couch. A review of seven other guest rooms uncovered similar problems. Non-working smoke detectors, accumulations of trash, a soiled table and couch, a prong of some kind stuck in the bathroom electrical outlet, Food debris, broken outlet covers, visibly stained furniture that had to be discarded, and toilet bowls that were visibly soiled with accumulated debris and feces. One bathroom faucet could not produce any hot water, and the interior of the lobby ice machine was soiled with debris. In addition, the inspector found rodent droppings in the breakfast area cabinets and underneath the kitchen's food preparation counter as well as dead gnats and dead fleas in a cabinet near the kitchen's reach-in freezer. The hotel had recently changed ownership from Serenity Hospitality to Reliance, Iowa, and as a result, it was operating without a valid hotel license, the inspector found. Reliance, Iowa was formed last August and is affiliated with Reliance Global, a Texas company that invests in hotels and retail spaces. That's another story by Clark Kaufman of the Iowa Capital Dispatch. All right, now I'll bring you the digest section, and then after that we'll reach into the uh, sports section here. Poland pushes for more tanks in Kiev. Dateline Warsaw, Poland. Poland said Monday it would ask Berlin for permission to send German-built Leopard tanks to Ukraine as its Western allies move to supply Kiev 
with more powerful military hardware to thwart Russia's invasion. Germany has hesitated to approve sending tanks to Ukraine, but Polish officials took heart from remarks Sunday by German Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock that Berlin wouldn't seek to stop Poland from providing Leopard 2 battle tanks. Polish Prime Minister Matusz Morawiecki didn't specify when the request to Germany will be made. He said that Poland is building a coalition of nations ready to send Leopard 2 battle tanks to Ukraine. Poland needs the consent of Germany, which builds the tanks to send them to a non-NATO country. Fourth Oath Keepers convicted over riot. Dateline Washington. Four members of the Oath Keepers were convicted Monday of seditious conspiracy in the January 6, 2021 protest in the second major trial of far-right extremists accused of plotting to forcibly keep President Donald Trump in power. The verdict against Joseph Hackett of Sarasota, Florida, Roberto Minuta of Prosper, Texas, David Marshall of Punta Gorda, Florida, and Edward Vallejo of Phoenix comes weeks after a different jury convicted the group's leader, Stuart Rhodes, in the mob's attack that halted the certification of Joe Biden. Separately, Richard Barnett, an Arkansas man who propped his feet up on a desk in then-House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's office during the uh, protest, was convicted on Monday of joining a mob's attack on the building two years ago. In the briefs from NATO, Turkey's president cast serious doubt on NATO's expansion Monday after warning Sweden not to expect support for its bid for membership into the military alliance following weekend protests in Stockholm by an anti-Islam activist and pro-Kurdish groups. Scam. Someone scammed U.S. Senator Jerry Moran's re-election campaign out of $690,000 by getting the Kansas Republicans accounting firm to wire the money to fraudulent bank accounts, his office said Monday. Musk. Elon Musk returned to federal court Monday in San Francisco, testifying that he believed he locked up financial backing to take Tesla private during 2018 meetings with representatives from Saudi Arabia's public investment fund, though no specific funding amount or price was discussed. Spotify. Music streaming service Spotify said Monday it will cut 6% of its global workforce, about 600 jobs, becoming yet another tech company forced to rethink its pandemic-era expansion as the economic outlook weakens. Arizona. Democratic Representative Ruben Gallego, a liberal firebrand and prominent Latino lawmaker, announced Monday he'll challenge independent U.S. Senator Kristen Sinema in 2024, becoming the first candidate to jump into the race. Sinema has not said whether she plans to run for a second term. Finally, FBI. Charles McGonagall, a former high-ranking FBI counterintelligence official who investigated Russian oligarchs, has been indicted on charges he secretly worked for one in violation of U.S. sanctions, according to an indictment unsealed Monday. The official was also charged in a separate indictment with taking cash from a foreign, a former foreign security officer. That from the Associated Press. Moving on now to the world of sports here in the Mason City Globe-Gazette, which uh, doesn't have anything local in it. Well, I take that back. We're going back here. High school hockey, that is one local thing. Uh, Mason City rebound, rebounds from Saturday's loss to win in shootout. This written by Austin Hansen. Mohawks, Ice Metros at Home is the title headline. The Mason City Mohawks had to work for their upset win over the Sioux City Metro Sunday in Midwest High School Hockey League action. The Mohawks took two Metros to the Metros to overtime 
and then to an eight-attempt shootout before walking away with a 3-2 victory at the Mason City Ice Arena. Mason City faced improbable odds throughout the last two periods of the game and overtime. With 11 minutes and 9 seconds remaining in the second period, one of Mason City's starting forwards, Kellen Canteris, was ejected from the game for fighting. Less than a minute later, sophomore Dylan Bieber was put in the penalty box for slashing. The infractions forced the Mohawks into a 5-on-3 disadvantage for more than three minutes. Kellen got kicked out, Mason City goalkeeper Zane Redfern said post-game. We fought for him, and then we got the win for him. He's a big asset to our team, so it was hard. We need him, and we fought without him and won. Initially, Mason City didn't allow Sioux City to score, but as soon as the Mohawks got a player out of the penalty box to play 5-on-4, they surrendered a goal as Sioux City's Grant Harder raced up the boards and scored in nearly uncontested fashion. Mason City trailed 2-1 for the next 24 minutes of game play. The Mohawks faced another 5-on-3 Metro power play with four minutes remaining in the game. The Mohawks successfully warded off the Metro shot attempts until they were back at full strength. Then, with one minute and 12 seconds left in the game, Mason City forward Dominic Dispenses, or Despinas, I think it's pronounced Despinas, scored an unassisted goal to tie the game and force overtime. I thought we killed well, Mason City head coach P.K. O'Handley said. I thought with Zane in the goal, you were killing five on three. Your goalie is going to be a big part of the penalty kill. I thought all around our guys really rallied and played well, he said. Mason City had a chance to put Sioux City away during the five-minute overtime period. The Mohawks were in a power play situation for two of the last four minutes in the extra frame because of a hooking penalty committed by Metro forward Joseph Hope. Sioux City held Mason City scoreless during the power play, forcing a shootout. In the shootout, Redfern allowed the Metro's first two attempts to hit the back of the net. From then on, however, he shut Sioux City out. Redfern racked up six saves in a row, five of which came in sudden death. While Redfern stalled Sioux City's attack, Forward Lamar Berrigan sealed Mason City's victory with one final make in the fifth round of sudden death shots. Redfern finished the game with 31 saves in 56 minutes. The Metro still outshot the Mohawks 33-28. I just kept thinking to myself, how am I going to save the next save? Redfern said, faced a lot of adversity, but we fought through it and came out with a win. He also said, big picture, Mason City quickly rebounded from its 8-3 loss to Sioux City Saturday night. The first game of the Mohawks' doubleheader ended around 10.30 p.m. Saturday. The second contest began at 11 a.m. Sunday. Despite the short turnaround, the Mohawks were more physical than they were on Saturday. Mason City was penalized 10 times on the game. When you're physical, you can debate the merits of what were penalties and that weren't penalties, O'Hanley said. But we were in the game. I felt the physicality of our defensemen on their forwards, and they've got good forwards. That certainly helped us, and then kind of carried through the lineup and got everybody into it. It was a good game. It was a hard game, but it was good we came out on top. Mason City is now 12-8 and and 1-1. and The Mohawks' upset victory did not move them out of sixth place in the Midwest High School Hockey League standings. The now 17-3-1-1 and and Metros didn't drop out of the top three in the MH, 
SHL with their loss to the Mohawks. Sioux City is still tied for third with the Des Moines Oak Leafs. Both teams have 36 standings points. Mason City is now 10 standings points away from the Leafs and Metros. The three teams that finish atop the MHSHL standings in the end of the regular season receive first-round buys in the league's postseason tournament in March. It should give us a confidence boost, O'Hanley said of his team's win Sunday. You know, Saturday's loss needs to give us a reality check, so we just need to find consistency to our game. Up next, the Mohawks' next game is scheduled for Friday. Mason City will travel to Ames for a matchup with the Cyclones. Moving on now to more sports from page 7. From Major League Baseball, what's happening there? Roland may get the call. Starred third baseman seen as top contender for this year's Hall vote. I know it seems early for MLB news here, but hey, whatever. Uh, AP story this, Dateline, New York. Scott Roland could become just the 18th third baseman elected to baseball's Hall of Fame, the fewest of any position. It stems from an original prejudice that third base is not important defensively, John Thorne, Major League Baseball's official historian, said Monday. I think Brooks Robinson changed that perception so that just as relief pitchers for the longest time were regarded as failed starters rather than a as a new position in the changing game, third basemen were regarded as washouts. A seven-time All-Star who retired after the 2012 season, Roland is among the top contenders on the 28-player ballot considered by the Baseball Writers Association of America in a vote announced Tuesday night. He received just 10.2% of his first ballot appearance in 2018 and climbed to 52.9% in 2021 and 63.2% last year, where he fell 47 votes shy of the needed 75%. The leading vote-getters are first baseman Todd Helton, at 79.8%, Rollin at 79.2%, and receiver Billy Wagner at 73.2%, according to Ryan Thubadu, Hall of Fame ballot tracker. I think it's pronounced Thubadu. T-H-I-B-O-D-A-U-X. Thubadu? Thubadu's Hall of Fame ballot tracker, which included 183 public plus anonymous ballots as of Monday afternoon among an estimated total of 396. When David Ortiz was elected last year, his final figure of 79.8% was down from 83.1% of public ballots ahead of the announcement. Barry Bonds declined from 76.8% of public ballots before the announcement to 66%, and Roger Clemens from 75.4% to 65.2%. So it is possible no one will be elected by the BBWAA for the second time in three years. This could become the first three-year span with only one player voted in by the riders since annual voting started in 1966. Anyone voted in would be inducted at Cooperstown on July 23rd, along with Fred McGriff, elected last month by the Competency Baseball Era Committee. There are 84 pitchers in the hall. Hall. They put this wrong here. It's a issue with uh, some formatting. There are 84 pitchers in the hall, including nine who were primary 
relievers. 27 right fielders, 26 each among the first baseman and shortstops, 24 center fielders, 23 left fielders, 20 second baseman, 19 catchers, and 17 third basemen. There also are three players who were primarily designated hitters, a position that didn't exist until 1973. Among players since the expansion era started in 1961, the only third baseman elected by the BBWAA have been Robinson in 1983, Mike Schmidt in 1995, George Brett in 1999, Paul Molitor from 2004, Wade Boggs 2005, and Chipper Jones 2018. Ron Santo, that's right, Ron Santo from the radio. Uh, Ron Santo was inducted in 2012 following a Veterans Committee vote. It's a very difficult position to play because you need to be very quick and the great third baseman have to be able to hit, former Commissioner Faye Vincent said. And when you think about it, after Brooks Robinson and Mike Schmidt, the number falls off pretty quickly. Rollin had a .281 batting average with 316 homers and 1,287 RBIs for Philadelphia from 1996 to 2002, St. Louis 2002 to 2007, Toronto 2008 to 2009, and Cincinnati 2009 to 2012. He was a unanimous pick as the 1997 NL Rookie of the Year, National League Rookie of the Year, hit a .421 as the Cardinals won the 2006 World Series and won eight gold gloves. Hilton, a five-time All-Star, batted a .316 with 369 homers and 1,406 RBIs with Colorado from 1997 to 2013. He won the 2000 National League batting title and three gold gloves. Helton's vote percentage rose from 16.5% in 2019 to 52% last year. Wagner had 422 saves, six on the career list, and was a seven-time All-Star in a 16-year career with Houston from 1995 to 2003, Philadelphia 2004 to 2005, the New York Mets 2006 to 2009, Boston in 2009, and Atlanta in 2010. Wagner's vote increased from 10.5% in 2016 to 51% last year. Carlos, Carlos Beltran, John Lackey, and Jared Weaver are among 14 newcomers. The first-time riders will evaluate Beltran following his role in the Astros cheating scandal en route to the 2017 World Series title. All right, in the time we have remaining, why don't we check in to Ask Amy. After incident, a woman questioned sexual consent. Dear Amy, I am a woman in a long-term relationship with a man. We have a good relationship talking through issues and agreeing on most things. When we disagree, we communicate, clear the air, and move on. The other night, my partner woke up in the middle of the night and performed a sex act with me that I did not enjoy and would never consent to. Had I been asked, I did not in the moment stop it or verbalize non-consent. I took a few days to process the incident. I then tried to discuss it with him. He said he vaguely remembers this, but claims to remember none of the details. He told me he feels bad that this happened, and I asked for time to continue to process my feelings. He wants to jump straight back into our usual physically affectionate relationship, but I'm not sure that I am ready. I don't think I want that yet. I know he will be disappointed, but respectful if I ask him to hold off having sex, but that can't last forever. 
How can I continue to process my emotions about this and work toward building emotional and physical intimacy with my partner? I can't afford therapy right now. I'm not sure if I even know how I feel in order to be able to talk about it with someone. Can you give me some feedback? That's from Confused and Concerned. Dear Confused, because this episode is way out of the norm for you two, I'd wonder why your partner did this and why he claims not to remember. Does he have a sleep disorder? Is he taking a drug that has affected both his behavior and memory? If so, he obviously needs to disclose this to you. If not, his memory is unacceptably vague. The issue of consent between lovers can seem complicated, but your partner performing a sex act with you in the middle of the night is a violation, regardless of whether you verbalize lack of consent at that time. This is your body, asleep or half asleep. You are not in a position to offer or refuse consent. Because he won't acknowledge your legitimate concern about his behavior, your partner wants to simply resume your physical relationship, but this would not resolve anything for you. You seem to frame this as your problem to solve. It's not. You shouldn't need to ask him to hold off on physical intimacy as he would be doing you some kind of favor while you get over this episode. If he wants to resume an emotional and physical relationship with you, he should work very hard to understand your reaction and rebuild trust. I urge counseling for you. RAINN.org offers 24-hour chat helpline where you can communicate with a volunteer counselor. Dear Amy, looking for love is a 72-year-old man who wrote about not having intimacy in his marriage for 20 years. He'd do well to look at whether he helps his wife with household chores. If he treats her like staff at an assisted living facility, he shouldn't complain that she doesn't want to be intimate with him. That could violate her employment contract. This suggestion is based on me being the staff at the assisted living facility that has housed my 74-year-old husband for more than three decades. <laughs> that written by Ben there. And Ask Amy writes, Dear Ben there, ouch. All right, that's Amy Dickinson's column. A little steamy this time, but uh, I'm sure all of you were uh, not uh, too blown away. You can email Amy Dickinson with your problems at askamy at amydickinson.com. Taking one last check of the forecast here before we hang it up for today. For your Wednesday, you can expect cloudy conditions with snow showers and winds from the north up to 14 miles per hour, the high 28 degrees. For tonight, a low of 16, and for your Thursday, low clouds, winds from the northwest up to 16 miles per hour, the high of 20. A nice day on Friday, 31 degrees, but on Saturday, it cools back down, high of just 12 degrees on Saturday. And that's your reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette. This is the Tuesday, January 24th edition, as brought to you here on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Stay tuned. Our live reading of the Des Moines Register is next. You won't want to miss it. And this is Andrew Halp filling in for this episode. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. Have a nice day and straight ahead. Thank you.